0: Bringing you the latest case law updates on the legal aspects of law enforcement. This is Broadcast Blue. Let me um, let me tell you what we're going to be talking about today. I'm going to talk about uh, consent searches. Now, there's a lot of confusion about consent searches. Get a lot of questions. I got a lot of questions when I was teaching in the at FLETSI and the four basic of uh, the primary programs the the academy, if you will, the four basic programs, um, which we taught search and seizure law in all four of them. Uh, but we, a lot of questions about consent, a lot of confusion about consent. And there's a lot of reason for that too. There's, it, it can be a little tricky. And so it's important to understand the fundamentals uh, for that. And so the whole purpose of this one hour uh, webinar is to Provide an overview, you know, like a, a 30,000 feet high altitude overview of consent searches and help frame these issues, these, these difficult issues, at least frame them uh, so you understand you have a reference point um, for, for other questions. You, you kind of figure, you, you can figure out you know, where they, uh, where they fit and, and how you go about trying to find the answers the questions that you have. As with, it's a fourth amendment issue. We're talking about searches or search and seizure law. We're talking about fourth amendment law. And I always like to start any, any presentation. And I, there's a number of you folks um, that I can see here that I recognize, names that I recognize. You're not surprised to see this because this isn't your first rodeo with me, right? It's not your first webinar. And you know that whenever I'm talking about search and seizure law, I always start with the fourth amendment because it's really, really important. And so, you know, why are we talking about consent searches? Well, consent searches are warrantless searches. And um, it goes all the way back to the fourth amendment, right? And the fourth amendment um, and the way it's been interpreted by the Supreme court, um, warrantless searches we know are presumptively unreasonable. Um, But that presumption is rebuttable and it can be overcome if you have a judicially recognized exception. What I often abbreviate as a JRE, just as a matter of convenience, the same way we abbreviate probable cause PC and reasonable suspicion RS and reasonable expectation of privacy is REP. JRE is just another shorthand way. So you don't have to keep saying over and over and over judicially recognized exception, which is um, really kind of a mouthful, but is consent even a JRE? I mean, there's some kind of, there's confusion, um, straight off the bat, you know, about, about what consent actually is and how does consent work with this requirement? Um, if we're doing a search and we're doing it with consent and without a warrant, how does it fit into this whole concept of warrantless searches being presumptively unreasonable? reasonable. We're going to talk about that there's three main questions, the three main uh, questions that you have to answer. Um, again, this 30,000 foot view of of the whole concept of consent searches. The first question is what is consent? What does it mean? Um, More specifically, what is its nature? Um, and we're going to talk about that first. That's going to be the first part of this webinar. The second part is uh, what does it allow and what does what would consent give you? I mean, how broad is it? How narrow is it? What are the what are the the ramifications of consent vis-a-vis the actions of the officer? Um, And we're at that scope. We're going to be dealing with issues of scope for that second question. And last but not least, by any means, is the whole concept of. Who can give consent? If it wasn't for a couple of Supreme Court decisions, this could be a very, very different, uh, different concept than it is today. Uh, And so we're going to talk about authority. Who is it that can grant this consent um, that we're going to talk about? And so those are the three main questions. And if you all, if you remember this, this is a really important slide because this is a really um, important breakdown of the whole concept. These are the, the, the categories of the issues that you have when we're talking about uh, consensual searches. Okay. Let's, uh, let's start out, let's start off with talking about um, the nature. What is consent? And it, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say misinformation, but there's a lot of confusion on this issue. And I'll, I'll have to tell you in the very beginning when I first started teaching this and every once in a while I'll, I'll slip up and I'll call it a waiver. Um, which is really not a good idea um, to call it a waiver. But, uh, but sometimes uh, uh, I've been known to do that, but it's really not. Um, But it could have been right. The whole concept of, of this, when you're granting consent, um, is it a waiver? Is it a knowing waiver or is it a voluntary acquiescence? And that's a, that was a really, really important decision. And there was a lot of discussion about this in the beginning. Um, There were three different, concepts, three different views uh, academically, um, when they were considering the, the nature of consent, right? And, and the one of them was, um, is that, uh, it was the permission involved a waiver. So it was actually a waiver of the fourth amendment rights. Instead of being a judicially recognized exception that made a warrantless search, um, nevertheless reasonable, if um, you could, you know, the, one of the arguments, the prevailing arguments prior to the Blue Key case was, um, was that it was a waiver. There's a lot of similarity, and there's a lot of discussion. If you, if you read through the academic materials for consent, if you read through Lafayette, which is, I mean, the Bible of search and seizure law, but a lot of other academics as well, a lot of discussions. Um, there's, an, and even in the Supreme court decisions, there were a lot of comparisons made to, um, Miranda, right? Where Miranda is a waiver of the fifth amendment right against self incrimination. So why is it should consent be considered a waiver? Um, and there were a lot of people who said consent should be a waiver and it should be considered a waiver. Um, but other folks said, no, it's, um, it's, a it's a, an issue of voluntary acquiescence. The officer's asking for permission to do something and they are voluntarily acquiescing um, to that request. And, and therefore it, it's not a waiver. Um, it makes this warrantless search reasonable as a result of it's the voluntary um, acquiescence of it, which is a, uh, another, another, uh, uh, important uh, uh, theory, I guess you'd call it. And so we had these competing theories going in, um, to our uh, very important decision that I'm going to talk about. And, uh, and that is, um, the Schneckloff the Bustamante case, um, back in 1973. Now you can tell, um, um, for those of you in the know, uh, you can tell why it was there was so much discussion about the Miranda decision. The Miranda decision came seven years before the Bustamante decision, and and um, and so there was a lot of uh, discussion about what was going to be required. Was it going to be? Was it going to be uh, a waiver, or was it going to be uh, hinge on the, the voluntary acquiescence. And and this was the Supreme court decision um, that uh, made, that decided it. And it wasn't a unanimous decision uh, by any means, but it's 1963. Uh, I refer to these cases. Um, you'll see the little blue key and whenever you see a blue key next to a case name, I, I refer to these as blue key cases. They're very important um, judicial decisions. Almost all of them are, uh, Supreme Court decisions, although there are a couple of blue key decisions that are uh, uh, just a few that are at the circuit court level, and um, these are very, very important because they establish this baseline um, for Fourth Amendment law through the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Fourth Amendment. And this is a, a the most important case, the Bustamante case. If if you if you don't read any other case when it, regarding consent, um, which would be hard to imagine that you wouldn't, um, but this is. This is the most important because this is the case um, that established that the consent was based on voluntary acquiescence and not on a waiver. It is not a waiver. Um, and since it is not a waiver, um, the Supreme court said, um, you do not have to warn someone. You do not have to tell them that they, that they, uh, that they have, uh, that they can say no and that they don't have to grant you consent. There was this whole issue, of, and and of whether or not you would have to do that. And that all goes with the decision as to whether or not, um, there's a waiver or whether it is, uh, determined to be, uh, to be, uh, voluntary, um, So the, the ultimate, um, test, um, it, the, the court said, um, the, well, you see here, they also said, the court also said, I'm going to quote them, a waiver approach to consent searches would be thoroughly inconsistent with our decisions that have approved third party consent. So they're saying they had already said that it was okay for a third party to, um, to grant consent. And I want you to think about that for a minute, right? If you're, when you're talking about, when you're talking about a Miranda waiver under the, um, for self-incrimination, right? one person cannot waive another person's right against self incrimination you can you can only waive your own rights right so you can't have a third party waiver um, it's a uh, it's undefinable there's it doesn't make sense the concept of a a third party waiver there can be no third party waiver and so if if this is not a if this is a waiver if uh, if granting consent operates as a waiver of the 4th amendment right then there can be no third party waiver. Um, and the court said in Bustamante, we've already recognized that that was okay. Um, and so uh, in Bustamante, uh, the, the court adopted uh, this concept um, uh, for the nature of it, the voluntariness focus. Now, I want to point something out, and this is really, really important. Um, there's a lot of academics uh, discussion, and a lot of the academic folks think that Bustamante um, was wrongly decided and they think that it ought to be a waiver. Um, and Lefebvre included, I mean, he's a very outspoken critic of the whole of, of the decision. Um, but, but it is what it is. I mean, it's the Supreme Court. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what any of us think. What matters is the majority of the Supreme Court and they've adopted it. So for Fourth Amendment purposes, consent is based on voluntariness and um, and, and not waiver. However, Um, States are always free to raise the bar. States are always free to impose more restrictions on the government, give people more freedom and protection than what the Fourth Amendment allows. And in a number of states under state law, they have retained this focus on waiver instead of voluntariness, even though the Supreme Court made it to where they didn't have to they just did it. Um, and in a lot of states, under state law, you still have this notion of, 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 of waiver, um, which means you have to get, um, you, uh, in a lot of states, you have to give a warning. I remember I was teaching in, um, uh, Western Arkansas somewhere, uh, Fort Smith, I think, over on the border with, uh, with Oklahoma. And, uh, and they actually have, a uh, under Arkansas law, they actually had a written form. They actually had to provide a warning. And it was worse than a Miranda warning. I I never, uh, when they read the form to they brought the form out, somebody went out to their car and got one of the consent to search forms for a a consent to search a vehicle. And it was worse than a Miranda warning. I was like, you, you really don't have to consent to this. And if you do consent and we find something, we're going to prosecute you. But um, if you say no, then we just have to go on our merry way. I mean, I just, I don't know why anybody in their right mind would grant consent after a warning of the, the nature that they had, they had to give under state law. And um, I can't address the issue of 50 different states when it, when it comes to this. And some states have a tendency to deviate from the Supreme Court more than others. I mean, you get some states like Vermont um, and Oregon and uh, New York to, to name a few. Um, where there are significant deviations uh, from the, what the Supreme Court establishes as a fourth amendment requirement. They, they impose a lot more. And then you have other states, um, uh, states like the state of Florida, where it's actually a part of the, it's actually a part of the constitution that the fourth amendment whatever the United States Supreme Court says it is. And so uh, you get a huge variance And so I always, I throw this out here at this point, especially when I'm talking to state and local folks um, because it's important that you understand that there are restrictions. So to the extent that I'm saying something like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to tell them that they have a right to say no and you don't have to, there doesn't have to be any certain type of form in order to gain consent. And you're thinking to yourself, well, self there sure is, we've got this form right here. It's not a function of the fourth amendment. It's a function of your state law. And so uh, it's something that uh, um, it's something that you do under state law, or sometimes even policy, which is either a little bit scary. Okay, so now that we got that out of the way, we know it's not we know it's not a waiver; it's voluntary acquiescence. But that still doesn't quite get us to where we need to be. We there's still questions. There's this can still go one of two ways underneath this voluntary acquiescence type of concept. Is it voluntary in fact, or is it, volunt- is it voluntary reasonably believed to be voluntary? Now that's a huge difference. There's a big, big difference between um, voluntary and fact, which means um, looking at all of the circumstances, was, the, was it actually voluntary? Um, or was it reasonably believed to be voluntary? And this, the the concept of whether or not it's reasonably believed to, to be voluntary brings in um, brings in more uh, to the discussion. And um, and I'm gonna a little bit of a spoiler alert. Or I'll tell you, that the the court in uh, Schneckloth didn't really address that question. You could have made the argument that they were that they they meant it to go um, either either way but let me I want you to to think about this for a second you have voluntary in fact which means it was it was voluntarily and and freely given right um or whether the officer reasonably believed that it was voluntary right so one of them is going to be more of a subjective test versus um on the part on the part of the person on the part of the, the grantee the person actually giving the consent where the other one is going to be more focused on what the officer thought. And and in order to, uh, in order to answer that question, uh, we get to another important case um, and uh, the Illinois versus Rodriguez decision, which I'll talk about in a couple slides, but uh, just to kind of give you a heads up um, to to where this is headed. um, They answered the question, um, definitively, the Supreme Court answered the question um, in the Illinois versus Rodriguez uh, case. Well, they appear to, uh, let me backtrack just a little, they appear to have uh, done that when they embrace the whole concept of apparent authority. The only way apparent authority works is if the voluntary acquiescence is based on a reasonable belief of the officer rather than voluntary in fact. And so you can, you can have a situation to where you really don't have, um, voluntary in fact consent at all. And yet, the officer reasonably believes that um, there's voluntary consent, and therefore, um, it makes it okay under the Fourth Amendment. And that's kind of, uh, and that's kind of, um, that's kind of where we're headed. So, um, it, it, say that for part three, because we're going to come back to this distinction when we start talking about apparent authority. But suffice it to say, before we move on, that. we've now got the question answered, you know, which of the three ways can this go? When it be a waiver, Um, can it be voluntary in fact, or the reasonably believed? And um, the answer is reasonably believed. And uh, that's the way it's been interpreted um, and handed down through the courts, which is actually very, very good for law enforcement. Um, A little too good, some folks would say, Um, but it's, it's the best possible outcome Um, in the, in the LEO world, um, of of the three ways that this could have gone with the court, the judicial interpretation, this was the best way um, for it to happen. Now, there are factors, right, that affect the voluntariness, and we have to be cognizant um, of those factors because it does have to be voluntary, um, and when we look at the voluntariness of it, is it whether that, is it reasonable to believe that the consent was voluntary? Um, there are capacity and coercion and issues that, that we're going to have to look at, right? Do they have the mental capacity um, to understand the ramification of consent? How old are they? What are their, what's their intelligence level? Um, you know, what are, are you dealing with here? Um, what is their mental state? Um, their psychological state? You know what are they, is there something that's going on and they're, they're really, um, um, upset or do they have some type of psychological, uh, underlying psychological issues and, and what is their physical condition? Um, are they drunk? Are they, are they, uh, impaired in any way? You know, all of the, when you think about consent in the broad sense and not just in a fourth amendment sense, you know, what are the things that affect your capacity to consent? Um, when you're uh, talking about, what in any in any context right if you're talking about contracts or you're talking about uh, capacity to consent to other uh, things uh, sexual activity right and those sexual assault cases the capacity to consent uh, it's the, we look at the same general things when we talk about the capacity to consent um, um and then we also the courts also look a lot at the coercive techniques and or that are used in order to obtain consent um and there, and we get a lot of cases on this. You know, we get cases on false authority. You get the officer holding up the, the, the piece of paper. That's a receipt from when he had his oil changed or something. And he, he, he folds up this paper. Um, so you can't see what's on it. And you know, knocks on the door and asks for consent to search the house, waves, the paper in the guy's face, you know, Joey bag of donuts, Joey bag of donuts. We can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way waving the paper in the air implying that he's got a warrant when he doesn't if you um, if you state that you have a warrant, if you ask for consent asserting false authority, um, then that will um, that will affect the voluntariness of it that will create a problem um, and threats making threats you know, give us consent or else threatening um, you know threatening now threatening to obtain a warrant um, there's a difference between saying um, we're asking for your consent, uh, if you do not give us consent, we'll go ask a judge for a warrant. I mean, that's not a threat. I mean, that's just saying, this is, we're asking for consent and if you don't give it, we're going to go ask for a warrant, you know, saying that we got a person on the way with a warrant when you don't really have a person on the way with a warrant. You know, obviously that's a whole nother another, uh, physically threatening people. I shouldn't have to say that. I mean, that's a, some of these things should be so, uh, some of these things should be so uh, common sense uh, that you wouldn't even think it would bear mentioning. And yet, there are cases, which meant, which means there are incidents where this actually happens. And so uh, um, uh, that's worth uh, putting out there too. And also consent that is uh, consent that's obtained as a result of a Miranda violation. So someone who has been unlawfully interrogated, um, someone and grants consent as a result of the unlawful interrogation that affects the, uh, the voluntariness of it as well, which is an important thing to point out there just because, just because you're under arrest doesn't mean that you um, cannot give consent. I um, mean, People give consent to search all the time after they've been placed under arrest and um, that it's a very, it's very commonplace. And so, um, uh, and the courts have said the mere fact that someone is in custody uh, doesn't mean that they are un- unable um, to give consent to search. And again, we're talking about a Fourth Amendment perspective and not uh, the state law, because I know there are a number in a number of states. um, This is a big, big deal. It's always tricky to talk about the automobile exception and consent searches when when you're talking to state and local folks, because those two areas of Fourth Amendment law, probably more than any other those two areas of Fourth Amendment law have more state restrictions above and beyond Fourth Amendment requirements probably than any other areas. Um, uh, There's just a lot of issues. And so I repeatedly have to keep throwing out there, you know, about state law, state law. Okay. So under the, as per the Supreme Court, there are no technical requirements. Um, You're not required to advise people that they have a right to say no. Uh, There's no waiver that's required under the fourth amendment. The consent doesn't have to be in writing. Is it a good idea to have it in writing? It's always a good idea for evidentiary purposes, but there's a difference between doing something for evidentiary purposes um, for that motion to suppress that you know is coming, right? Um, There's a difference between doing something for evidentiary purposes and doing something because you have to under the fourth amendment and um, it's not required under the fourth amendment, but it, like I said, it's a good idea. And um, uh, we have a, a, another blue key case for these propositions, United States versus Drayton, uh, which came out back in, uh, in 2002. Okay. So that's, that, that's the first part, you know, what's the nature, the nature of consent, you know, is it a waiver or is it voluntary acquiescence? And if it's voluntary acquiescence, is it, uh, is it, uh, consent in fact, in fact, are um, is it uh, reasonably believed uh, voluntariness? And so we we've narrowed that down in the first part. So now we understand the nature of consent under the Fourth Amendment. And the, the second part um, gets into a little bit more tricky areas and where you get a lot of cases. And again, this is a this is a one hour um, just an overview. Uh, the 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 learning module that we've developed for this topic is a little over three hours and so it goes into a lot of these other these other areas Um, and uh, right now the the scope um, scope is a big part of that there's a lot in authority too especially a parent authority but we get a lot of scope um, questions and and issues and so let's talk about it what is scope the second part um, uh, the scope uh, is answering the question where you can search and what you can look for right this is all about once you've got the consent you know what is the breadth and depth of this search that's going to take place where can you search Um, of all the, the the places that are possible you know where is it you can search and what what can you look for well it's an a really important part um a really important part of this um gets to um the fact that this because the court said this is not um, a waiver. Um, and we basically with consent, we're not limited by the particularity language of the, uh, of the warrants clause that we would be limited with if we had probable cause, limited to if we had probable cause in a search warrant, right? We've all, scope when it comes to warrant execution, you've always got scope limitations based on the warrant and that's going to be based on the particularity language of the warrants clause. So we don't have these general warrants, but, with consent we're not bound by those types of constrictions but we are bound um, by what it is that we've asked for and what it is that we've been given and so how do you know the scope you know how do you determine and again they're going with this objective reasonableness the concept they love so much right which is it's it's home cooked i mean it's baked into the fourth amendment itself right the whole concept of reasonableness which um, um, Ohio versus Robinette, right? Um, Chief Justice Rehnquist, that, that, that reasonableness is the touchstone um, of the Fourth Amendment. So this whole concept of um, reasonableness carried over when you're determining what the scope of consent is, is what would the typical reasonable person have understood the exchange um, between the officer and the suspect um, to have granted, right? And we have another blue key case for that out of Florida, um, uh, the Florida versus the Hemanow case. This is a really, um, this is a really important issue, right? Because how do we obtain consent? I mean, th- now there are situations where people, don't get me wrong, there are situations where sua sponte, all on their own, um, we've done a traffic stop or whatever, and you go up and ask for license and registration, and the driver says you can search the car if you want just out of the clear blue, which kind of raises a suspicion, doesn't it? Um, You haven't even, even if that's where you were headed, the fact that they've done it, they beat you to the punch. Typically the search comes about as a result of a request from the officer. And so the question is, what have you asked for? Consent can be limited by the LEO, in the manner in which it's requested. If you, if you ask someone that you would like, um, for example, compare these two, do would you give me consent to search your car? Is do you have anything in the car that I should know about? No, sir, I don't. Do you have any contraband? You got anything in the car to know about? No, sir. And you've been really nondescript you haven't defined what type of contraband you're looking for, right? Um, um, you've, you're asking them, can I search the car? Yeah, go ahead um, that's, that is remarkably different than saying, can I search your trunk for firearms? Um, and so just by the, what you have asked for, um, is going to be a limitation. I mean, if you were, if you have asked to search the trunk for firearms, right. And you go inside the trunk and inside the trunk, there's a container. Um, and the container is the size uh, is something where, um, a firearm could be located, right? Do you get the container within the trunk? And the general rule is yes, you do, right? But um, what if if you see an envelope? What if you see a really, an an envelope inside the trunk and it's it's unsealed, um, but you, you lift the flap up and you look inside the envelope and you've got a bunch of Polaroids that are clearly child pornography. Well, now you're gonna have a problem, right? If you asked to search the trunk for firearms, you went into the trunk and there was an envelope. You weren't going to find a firearm in that envelope. But what you did find was this criminal evidence of other criminal activity. You've exceeded the scope because you asked to search the trunk for firearms. So you're limited, you limited yourself both to where you could look and what you could look for in that space. And so often um, we're, we're stuck with the limitations that by the way that we've asked it, Um, sometimes we ask for consent and it's it's expanded through uh, what I call consent expansion by the request of the officer, right, Um, or by the actions of the individual. Let me give you a couple examples. You've asked if you could look, um, you've asked if you can look in um, a storage shed. Can I look through your storage shed for whatever, right, A, a person and they say yes. And then after you've searched the shed and you hadn't found anybody, you see another, a smaller little, uh, locker, that's a, a, the size a person could fit in. You didn't ask for that originally, but now you say, can I look in here? And they say, yes, well, now you've modified that. That's a, an expansion through modification by what you've requested. It's basically a second consent request, right? Um, but it can also, and then we've had court decisions where, the consent has been expanded by the actions of the individual. The, the the officer would ask for permission to search one specific area of the premises or whatever. And the person who granted the consent would then lead them to another area beyond um, where that was they asked for consent. And through the actions of this other of, of the individual by, by um, inviting them into this uh, space, they have expanded um, the 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 consent through their actions beyond, but you always have to fall back on what is it that you've asked for? What have you asked to search? Have you asked to search a specific location, a specific part of the car? Have you asked to look in the passenger compartment? Have you specifically asked to look in the trunk, or have you asked for the whole car? Have you specified what it is that you're looking for? Right? Um, um, and w- will that will that limit you in any way? Right? Um, for example, asking requesting the permission to look for firearms is different than asking for permission to search for drugs, right? Cause um, drugs can be in a lot more areas than firearms can be based on the, the, size difference. Um, and consent can be limited by the grantee. You can ask for one thing, but they can give you another. May I search the car? Yes, you can. But I want you to be quick about it so um, I can get on my way and you can search the passenger compartment, but not the trunk. I don't want you going through my trunk. I got a lot of lot of stuff in there. I don't want you going through it, but you're 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 free to search the passenger compartment. They have limited the consent um, by what they've given you. You asked for you asked for one thing, but what you were given was something else, and so now you are limited. The consent's been limited by the grantee, the person who um, is granting the consent. You can search my car, but you can't open any containers. Um, they're being limited. Um, and they have the, they have the ability, um, to do that as well, which is important. And another really important factor, um, is the fact that consent can be revoked. Now, this is incredibly significant. A revocation is a, uh, we, we get a number of cases in consent revocation. Um, now this isn't, um, uh, this is from circuit court decisions and lower court and state court decisions. This hasn't expressly been, um, a function um, uh, uh, defined by the U.S. Supreme Court, per se. um, But uh, we have the other the the lower courts looking at all these different examples and all these different issues of revocation. Um, And the important thing to remember about revocation, since they can revoke it, since once consent is given, in order for it to be voluntary, it's got to be revocable as well. right? Once consent is given, it can be revoked. Now, once you find evidence, once you find evidence, you can seize that evidence. They can't revoke the consent after the evidence is found in order to exclude the evidence, but it would prevent you from going further unless you had a warrant or a judicially recognized exception. If you're searching an automobile based on consent and then you find contraband, you find drugs or evidence in the trunk, Um, and consent is revoked and you continue to search, Um, you're no longer doing that under the consent JRE. You're doing that under the automobile exception. So you're operating under a different JRE, a different judicially recognized exception, which means you got a different set of rules you got to play by, right? Because every, every JRE has a purpose and has requirements. And so when you shift JREs and you, you are operating under consent JRE, and now you're operating under the automobile exception JRE, you're stuck with the rules of the automobile exception um, JRE at that point, um, or, or you'd have to get a warrant. Um, and so revocation is an important part. And you have to understand that you have to leave them in a position where the revocation can occur, because revocation is valid when it's given, not when you hear it not when it's delivered, but when it's issued. Um, and we've got some interesting, really interesting cases of that. We've got a, a, a case where a person was detained in the back of a police vehicle. And um, they're on the dash, the, the cab audio, is was on the, the dash cam videos capturing the cab audio. Um, and uh, the two officers got consent. They put the guy in the back of their car because it was really cold outside and they put him in the back of a patrol car. Um, but they didn't have any windows rolled down or anything. because it was cold. That's the reason he's in the car to begin with, right? Um, uh, Joey bag of donuts here gives him uh gives him consent to search the vehicle, and they put him in the back of the car. And then he remembers, <laughs> he remembers that contraband in his trunk that he forgot about, right? And he's beating on, he's he's screaming, stop, stop! And he's trying to revoke consent, but they can't hear him. And then they find this contraband um, after he's clearly been yelling to stop. Um, and the court said, no, the, the, the consent was revoked when he issued it, not when you heard it. And so all that, that evidence got thrown out. Um, as a result of that, I used to, when I was teaching at FLETSA, I used to do a lot of stuff in the cyber division. I, I was, um, I, I was also the electronic, uh, um, evidence guy. Uh, I did a lot of training for the folks in cyber division, great group of folks over there. And, um, we used to talk about when they were cell writing phones and we would get permission to um, to search a cell phone and they were doing cell phone searches under consent. Um, and um, and they would copy, uh, they would copy the phone, right? They would cell write the phone and they would they mirror the data out of the phone. Um, and they would have all this data. Um, they might even give the phone back, but they've got the data in the phone. My thing was, while you've got consent, you ought to run through that Cellbrite algorithm really, really fast to see whether or not you've got any child pornography on there um, because you've got consent. And so you're not limited, right? And, and, um, and you can, with consent, you can look for anything, as long as you didn't limit yourself when you requested it. Um, but if you put this off, because sometimes the forensic analysis of the mirrored cell phones, it can take months and months, depending on where you fit on your priority. Um, it can take months. I tell if you've got consent to search a cell phone, you need to do it fast. You need to at least to do a cursory, uh, the algorithm check or something you need to do, because if they revoke consent before you have found anything, before you have searched the data, not only can you not ser- search the data, you can't even keep it. Because when you copy digital data, that's a seizure of the digital data. And if the seizure was based on consent and they revoke consent, you can't even keep a copy. Of the digital data, and so um, consent when it comes to digital data searches can be really, really tricky, and it's really important for you to to move move really quickly as a result of this revocation issue. Uh, refusal um, to consent. How do they? What if they say no? Every once in a while, you're trying to do your trooper two step during traffic stop, right? Um, as I talk about in the the traffic stops uh, my the traffic stops course. Um, uh, that whole Trooper 2 step. Um, sometimes you ask for consent, what do they say? No. Well, when they say no, what does that mean? Well, the fact that they've said no, the fact they refuse to consent is not admissible at trial to establish guilt, which is important to the lawyers, but important to the the cop. Even though when someone says, no, you can't search my car, even if that subjectively makes you think, the only reason they're saying that is because there's something in there, um, you cannot use that as one of your articulable facts to establish either a reasonable suspicion or probable cause. In in other words, the fact that someone refuses to give you consent can't be the basis for, can't provide the basis for, um, a warrantless search anyway. It'd be self-defeating if that was the point, because then you would get to search whether they said yes or no. Right. Um, and so, Um, even though that might raise eyebrows, whenever someone says, no, you can't search my car. Um, it, that's not one of your articulable facts to establish that level of suspicion that you need in order to conduct some other type of warrantless, um, search under a a different judicially recognized exception. Okay. We're about eight minutes out. took a little bit longer to do that first part than I really thought. Look, it's a, it's a free webinar. And so I'm going to take two minutes just to to, to throw out a little bit of, of info here before I get to the very last step. And some of you are thinking to yourself, yeah, I know why you're doing this, Bruce, because we're a captive audience. We're not going to turn you off now. You used to do this in the end. Yeah, I did. And I watched the numbers dwindle. As soon as I was finished and thanked everybody before I got a chance to plug Leah, all the numbers dropped down to less than half of what they were. So you're a captive audience and I got you. Um, so I just want to, I want to point out, and I, and I mean this in all sincerity, there there's a huge difference between Leah one and some of the other folks that are offering, um, training, um, it's not enough for you to have ex- legal experience. You have to have the right legal experience. You know, it's a, a very, uh, one of the more popular, I'm not going to mention any names, but one of the more uh, popular groups out there. And you got a um, you got somebody who was an outstanding police officer, went to law school and, um, and, and was admitted to the bar half a year ago um, that is a self-proclaimed senior legal instructor and and search and seizure subject matter expert. Never defended a single motion to suppress evidence. Never, no formal training whatsoever in how to teach, no training expertise. Um, And with a lot of content out there that's not peer reviewed, All all of our instructors have significant legal experience. We have the right legal experience We're all trained educators, um, legal certifications, instructor certifications, degrees in instructional design and and adult education. and We understand what it means to develop curricula professionally. We have professionally developed uh, course curricula with learning objectives and assessments and and reviews and test question validation and everything else. And everything we do is peer reviewed. Um, Everything we do. Some of you have been asking me, Bruce, when is your book going to be out? as I've been telling you for a year, I've got a search and seizure book that we're about to go to publish on. We're about to go to print. Look, it would have been in print a year ago, but for the fact it's being peer reviewed, I'm having um, more than one other person go through it and we're carefully going through all the information. It's a, it's a peer reviewed. And so at the end of all that, we, what do you get from LEA 1? You get legal training that you can really trust and, um, and that's the difference. That is um, the LEA 1 difference. And uh, I just wanted to point that out because it's important. It's really important. Um, you won't ever hear of a webinar training event on Alia 1 and there's a reason for that. Let's d- jump in and finish this thing up talk about the last part. Last but not least, that third issue, we're talking about authority. And in this third question, we're looking at who can give consent to search? Who Who is it um, that can grant this consent that we're looking at? And we have two types of authority. We have actual authority, um, the person who actually has the authority to consent to search a certain object, right? And we're going to talk about what constitutes that, but we also have apparent authority. And the reason we have apparent authority is because of the case, the, the Illinois um, case that I was talking about earlier, where I said, you've got to, um, because of this case of uh, where we have this concept of, of apparent authority, as long as it's reasonable, as long as the, under apparent, under the apparent authority doctrine, even if the person doesn't have actual authority, it's not their bag that they're giving you consent to search. It's not their house that they're giving you consent to search. It's not their car that they're giving you consent to search. As long as the officer's belief that they have authority is objectively reasonable based on the circumstances, then the consent will be valid. And the search will not be unreasonable even though the person didn't have the actual authority. Um, that's a, a very, the only way that can happen, um, is, um, is as a result. So let's, um, let me, um, let me talk about actual authority real quick. The whole concept of, um, who has the authority, dominion and control, right? Who has dominion and control over an object? Um, because because it's dominion and control issues, right. And, and the whole concept it, the focus is more on the possessory right than on the ownership interest, right? Um, it's, you might own something, but not have consent to search. You might own a house, but not be able to give consent to search because you have leased that house out to someone else you no longer have the dominion. And even though you own the premises, you have relinquished the exclusive right to occupy the premises to another person. And therefore you do not have um, that dominion and control. You have the ownership interest, but you don't have the possessory interest in a lot of situations. And more often than not, I would say possessory interest and ownership interest are merged into one person that every once in a while you get situations to where the possessory interest and the ownership interest have been divested into two different people. And in that situation, it's the person with the possessory interest that is going to have the actual authority and not necessarily the one with the ownership interest. It all depends on how much of the degree of control has been given up. If I let someone borrow my car, um, and I'm the owner, um, and I've let them borrow the car, I would still be able to give consent to search the car, right? Um, if police came up to me and um, I'd loan the car to someone else and they said, Hey, can we search the car Is right there and I'm standing there? Can we search the car? Um, even though I've loaned it to someone else, um, I would, I would still have a, a degree of, of control to go with the Dominion, right? The, um, but what if I've leased a car? What if I'm a, a car company and I've leased the car to another person, right? Um, how much control do I have now? Well, I don't want to get into all the contractual things um, uh, with respect to that, but it's possible. What about a hotel room? When you rent a hotel room, can the clerk in a hotel give you authority to search room 211 if 211 has been rented out to someone? It's been um, someone has, has rented that room for two nights and they're staying in this room and they've given them the key. Well, when they give them the key, they've given them exclusive use of that. Um, and so the, the hotel clerk, um, would not be able to allow you to search that room, but they would be, they would be able to to consent for you to search an empty room, right? someone that someone's checked out of. And then we have cases where they've stayed past checkout time. So they're no longer legally in the room and we get cases on that. Can they consent then? And you get a lot of cases, um, in these, um, in these, uh, these two to set the last two of the three questions. And then we have joint authority. What if more than one person has an actual authority? You know, what are the rules when you have more than one person who has actual authority um, over uh, an, an object? Now we had back in 1974, we had the Matlock case and uh, basically uh, if you had two people and one person, one of the, they both had, they both had they could both uh, issue consent. And we, a lot of these cases dealt with premises searches and consensual searches of premise, um, and, uh, homes. And a lot of them dealt with spouses. So you might, you'd have a husband and a wife and the husband would say, no, you can't search, but the wife would say, yes, you can. And they were both present. Um, well that changed, um, and in in Georgia versus Randolph in 2005, the court kind of flipped on that and they said, Hey, look, consent by one co-occupant, is not valid if another co-occupant is present and objects to the search. And so it added a layer to Matlock, right? Um, you only need consent of one. If you have two co-occupants, you know, two people, a husband and a wife live in a house, you only need consent of one to search the house. But if both the, both the husband and the wife are there, um, and the husband says no then the no that no effectively revokes the consent of the other occupant right um if if either of the two occupants that are on the scene if either one of them say no you can't then you can't and that's what that's a blue key case as well i'd have a little blue key next to georgia versus randolph and then we had the fernandez case um about six years ago in 2014 um and basically the the whole concept an occupant uh the occupant who is is absent due to a lawful detention or arrest stands in the same position as an occupant um who is resident um for any other reasons In this particular case in fernandez fernandez um and his girlfriend were in the dwelling The officers went in there to arrest Fernandez. Fernandez tells them to get out. They they don't have a right to be in there. Get out of my house. Yeah. I don't want you searching my, basically, there's saying you can't search my house while he's there, but then they arrest him and he leaves. And now he's down at the station. He's no longer at the house. Um, and they go to the house and they ask the girlfriend for consent to search. And, um, and, um, and since he wasn't there under the, the Randolph rule, the court said that um, um, that it was okay. No, it was a close call. Um, it was a there were it was a six three decision. There were three dissenting judges, and they all said they should have gotten a warrant once they knew that he had objected. But um, anyway, so those those are three really important cases for you to know and to read when it comes to the whole concept of um, joint authority. Okay. Let's take a look We're a little bit over. But that's okay. We're almost finished. Wrap it up. We've got a parent authority now. All right. Consent, uh, this, up uh, this concept, but they don't actually have authority, but it it's objectively reasonable for the police to believe that they do. Right. And this is the, again, the Illinois versus Rodriguez case that I talked about earlier, um, back, that blue key case from back in, in 1990. Since this is not an issue of waiver and it's an issue of reasonableness, and it goes to the reasonable belief of the officer. If the officer's belief is mistaken yet reasonable, in other words, the officer mistakenly, but reasonably believes the person giving them authority actually has the authority, then it's okay. It's not a violation of the fourth amendment, right? Um, In, in Rodriguez, in the Rodriguez case itself, um, there was an ex-girlfriend. They asked her for, um, permission to search the apartment. She constantly referred to it as our apartment. She and she no longer lived there. She was the ex, and she no longer lived with the boyfriend. But even though she didn't um, she didn't uh, live with him, she kept referring to it as their apartment. It's our apartment. It's ours. And she had a key. She still had a key to unlock the door, based on the fact that she referred to it as theirs jointly and that she had a key to unlock the door, it was reasonable for the officer to believe that she had the actual authority to grant consent. And so when they seized that evidence that didn't go in Rodriguez's way, um, the court said it was a, it was reasonable that the consent um, was valid based on this apparent authority, that reasonable belief that she had actual authority, even though she didn't. And here's, an, here's a, here is a circuit court decision the United States versus Richards it, the uh, uh, uncle had apparent authority over the nephew's room the uh, ne- uncle owned the house and the door was unlocked and no one told the police that the room belonged to the, the nephew. The police didn't have any reason to believe that the uncle didn't have a right to enter. What about containers? We're talking about premises. Um, you can talk about that a lot. Um, and, and those are, can be tricky too but what about containers right when the again when a police officer reasonably believes the person granting consent has the right to do it because of their control over the container it's apparent authority we have the the himino case out of florida from 1991 again right Um, um if and if you grant consent to search a car unless the consent is qualified in other words unless it's limited by the person giving it um, then it, it has the authority to search any closed containers that, that might be in there. Sometimes it's not reasonable to assume, right? A hotel clerk cannot grant consent to search a room provided to a guest. I already told you that that's the stoner v. California case, the stoner case, right? Um, doesn't subject matter and what you might think it is. Um, it's unreasonable. Here's a, a case, um, out of, uh, Indiana, right? Unreasonable to believe the male housemate, could grant consent to search a female housemate's purse. It's clearly not his, but compare that with the seventh circuit decision where a, a one woman is in possession of another woman's handbag. And it was reasonable for the officer to believe that it was hers. Um, and therefore the consent to search the purse was okay. It was valid. Um, here's another one of uh ninth circuit decision. There were two people that shared an apartment that each had their own bed and the person who granted consent um, to search uh, identified his bed, but under the other person's bed, who was not there, there was a gym bag and it belonged to the other person. Well, um, it was not reasonable for the officer to believe that a gym bag under the other tenant's bed, um, that this person had the authority to grant consent to search it. And since that, that um, uh, it didn't exist, then that that was not uh, reasonable. So we, we look to those those different factors. Again, it's, it's really tempting to get into in-depth discussion on all this, but we only had an hour. Um, quick little summary, you know, we talked about the, the three concepts. What is consent? What does consent, consent allow and who can give consent, right? And we know consent is a judicially recognized exception. It is not a waiver. It's a JRE. Um, and the consent, um, the JRE is based, on the officer's reasonable belief. It's not an in fact uh, voluntariness. It is based on voluntariness, um, a reasonable belief. What does the consent allow? Uh, it, 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 it allows for a search, again, uh, using a reasonableness standard. What would a reasonable person believe? Um, what did the person granting uh, the consent um, reasonably expect the limitations to be? And we get a lot of that by what we ask for and by any qualifications or restrictions that are put on us by the grantee, the person giving this consent and who can give consent. We talked about the difference between actual authority and then apparent authority. Um, with the reasonable belief that the person has a actual authority when they really don't and the, what it takes to, to, to reasonably believe that reasonable, 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 all over throughout the whole thing where it's all about reasonableness, right? Um, and so there you go, which, um, which makes it interesting. Also makes it can be a little bit complicated. We have to look to these court decisions to tell us, you know, what's reasonable and what's not. Sometimes it's not quite so clear. And we're operating in a more of a gray area than a black and white and look into the cases for that. Okay. Uh, it's been almost an hour. Um, it's been a little bit more than the, the hour, although I took a little bit longer for the introduction than I planned. Thank you uh, for joining me. Thank you so much this presentation is provided for purely academic purposes I'm fond of saying I'm a lawyer but I'm not your lawyer and what I mean by that is that I do not provide formal legal advice through these presentations no part of this presentation is offered nor should it be construed as legal advice if you need formal legal advice regarding any part of this presentation or have legal questions you should consult with your attorney